Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11? Now in our study of John's Gospel, we are currently in John chapter 11, looking at the greatest miracle that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, as we said last week, death is a reality that each of us must face at some point in our life, whether it touches us personally or someone uh, close to us, someone that we love. Uh, it's not limited to any one class of people or ethnic group. As someone said, small or great, rich or poor, young or old, no one escapes its grasp. Paul the Apostle said that the human race has been taken captive by death, which has caused people to live their lives in bondage to the fear of death. Some people can't even enjoy life. They're so afraid of death. And yet chapter 11 has some good news for all of us. Because in chapter 11, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, announced the greatest news ever delivered to mankind when he said, verses 25 and 6, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So far in our outline of John 11, we have looked at the critical friend, Lazarus, who is critically sick, the callous Savior, the concerned disciples, and we are currently looking at the fourth point of the outline for this chapter, the confused sisters. Let me just say one more time, because uh, we always have new folks that are either here for the first time, or we'll be watching online next service. But um, the reason I've called this fourth point in our outline, the confused sisters, is because of Jesus' response to the urgent message they sent to him, uh, pleading with him to come quickly and heal their brother Lazarus, who was on the verge of death. At the time the girl sent this message to Jesus, he and his disciples were uh, in Bethabara, down by the Jordan, which was a two-day journey by foot to Bethany. But Jesus purposely waits a couple of days before making the trip to Bethany, not exactly the actions of a close or dear friend. This behavior was so unlike Jesus in that it seemed, you know, so callous and indifferent of him, so unlike the loving Savior that they had known for three and a half years, that it generally are in greatly confused Martha and Mary. Let's pick it up in verse 17 again. So when Jesus came, so he finally comes to Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went uh, and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is to who is to come into the world. Now, verse 25, guys, contains the fifth of seven I am statements that John builds or built his gospel around. The phrase I am is the name of God, first expressed in the book of uh, Exodus, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And uh, Moses said, Lord, I don't even know your name. I mean, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? He said, you tell him that I am is sending you. I am, the name of God. By the way, it's a verb. And it means the becoming one. The becoming one. In John's gospel, Jesus called himself I am, the name of God, coupled with seven different nouns or combinations of nouns expressing what he desires to become to people starting with the desire to be their savior as expressed in the name Jehovah Shua or Yehoshua or short for Yeshua, the Hebrew of the Greek Jesus. In Jesus' very name, it means God Almighty, the I Am, wants to save you, wants to become your savior. Uh, as we have said in previous studies, each of these statements is a declaration of divinity uh, since they each begin with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am in human form, which is the theme of John's entire gospel. Look at chapter, not right now, but look at chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Uh, I think of it this way, and again, we're just reviewing from past studies, but think of it this way. It's a name coupled with a description like Phil Ballmeyer, comma, the pastor. So far in our study in John's gospel, we have seen Jesus declare, I am the bread of life, 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. I am the door, John 10, verse 9. And I am, again, God. I am the name of God, the good shepherd, chapter 10, verse 11. And now we come to the fifth I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Guys, John 11 verses 25 and 26, I think have to be in the running for the greatest verses in the Bible. We all have our favorites, but if we were compiling a list of 10 of the greatest verses in the Bible, I have to believe that these two verses would be in the running for the greatest. Let's read them again. Verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I'd like to break these two verses down using the following outline. The person, the path, the promise, and the power. First of all, the person. Again, I am. That's a name. The name of God, the resurrection, and the life. Jesus Christ presented himself all throughout his ministry as the great I am. He wasn't just another teacher sent from God to teach a spiritual truth as so many skeptics believe about him. I mean, if Jesus was just one of many religious teachers uh, that have come down to us down the pike of human history, just one of many, 
Well, then his words would carry no more weight than the teachings of other religious leaders like Buddha, Confucius, or Muhammad. And yet Jesus never allowed himself to be lumped in with any other religious teacher, not back then and certainly not today. In other words, he wasn't just one way. He wasn't just one of many ways a person could follow to get to God slash heaven, nirvana, whatever a person believes in. He is not just one of many ways, as many believe. He is the one and only way. As Jesus said of himself in his sixth I am statement, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Once again, when Jesus called himself I am, it was a declaration of divinity. And don't think that was lost on his enemies, by the way. They understood he was claiming. Every time he said, I am, they understood he was claiming to be God in human form, which is why they tried to stone him on several occasions. <laughs> the most recent one we studied was in chapter 10. I'll read to you verses 31 to 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus, because he made one of these declarations of divinity. Okay. And if you miss it, you can be grateful to the Pharisees because they will accent it by picking up stones to kill. So if you, you read too quickly over something and all of a sudden you're reading and the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him, stop back up. You missed something important. Okay? Then the Jews, Jewish leadership, took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, and the Greek is constantly, continually, make yourself God. This was no isolated incident. This was the hallmark of his ministry. That everywhere he went, he went around proclaiming his divinity and oneness with the Father, with the Spirit, that he is God in human form. Now, Jesus had said earlier to these very Pharisees that there is no salvation for those who reject him as the great I am. Turn back to chapter 8. Again, we studied this. John 8, verse 27. Therefore, Jesus is speaking, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll notice the word he in verse 24 is in italics. That means it's not there in the original Greek. But it was added by the translators in an effort to clarify for us what Jesus is saying. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't work here. It doesn't clarify, as well-intentioned as they were to add the he, it doesn't clarify, it only clouds what Jesus is saying about himself. What Jesus really said was, and I'm quoting, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. In other words, you will die and go to hell for eternity if you do not believe that I am. I am, that's what he said. You will die in your sins. Again, we can read that if you do not believe that 
I am. If you do not believe that I am Almighty Jehovah God, you are going to die in your sins and spend eternity apart from God in the lake of fire. One of the essential doctrines that a person must believe if they're going to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven someday is that Jesus is Jehovah God, or as most of us would pronounce it, Yahweh. Again, that he is the great I am. Uh, salvation is all about a person. That's what separates Christianity from every other religious system on the planet. Many of them are built on what their founders or leaders said, but not on them personally. If Buddha hadn't said what he said or Muhammad hadn't said what he said, others could have said those things, right? Those faiths are not built on their teachers, their leaders, the one who founded the system. On their teachings, yes, but on them, no, not personally. But Christianity is the only religion that is inextricably linked to its founder. Without Jesus Christ, the person, Jesus Christ, we would have no Christian faith. So when you're talking about one of the greatest statements in the Bible, about resurrection and so on, it's tied first and foremost to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have started with the person. It's all about Jesus. Secondly, the path. Verse 25, um, he goes on to say, he who believes in me. He who believes in me. Faith, guys, is the way, or as I put it, the path that a person must take to have eternal life. But not just any faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. You know, maybe you've heard this from people. I have. Uh, you know, it's not important what you believe. Only that you believe something. Now, I've heard that from people, and uh, I might have even agreed with it before I got saved. I can't remember. I know one thing for sure now. Anybody who tells me that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is not born again, because we all know, yes, it's absolutely important what you believe. Or as we just said, in whom you believe. I mean, there is no power in faith in and of itself. The power of faith is always in the object it's connected to. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, who he is, what he did, right? I mean, this is very important. Jesus made this very clear, uh, numerous places and all the way through the New Testament. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14? He said, you know, be careful. Uh, you know, be, be careful that you enter through the narrow gate. For broad is the gate, wide is the way that leads to, uh, to destruction. Many go down that path, but narrow is the gate, and, uh, uh, but uh, narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. There are few who find it, not because it's hidden, but because the other gate, the other broad way, is marked this way to God, this way to heaven, but it's very broad, indicating it's very tolerant, very easy to walk, doesn't require. Uh, anything in the way of commitment or taking up a cross or anything like that, right? Who wouldn't want that? You got two unbelievers, you got an unbeliever. He's got two roads in front of him. One looks very wide and pleasant and, and tolerant and, and accepting of different beliefs and all. And he got one very narrow, rugged, okay, path. Which one would 
well, not you, you've chosen the right path by God's grace. But a lot of people in our world are choosing a broad path because it includes many different faiths. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something and are sincere. And because it's marked this way to God, this way to heaven or whatever, many are opting to take the broad way. The narrow way, of course, is Jesus. It's the way of the cross. And it's not that it's hidden that only a few find it. It's that it's not pleasant. It doesn't feed into our flesh. It's not something my flesh would desire or crave. But the narrow way is the only one that leads to life, eternal life. When Jesus, and Jesus made this abundantly clear when he said, I am the way. And then he goes on to say, no one gets to the Father except through me. This is the, 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 the path of a faith that leads to salvation, as I've put it. When Jesus said, I am the way, no one gets, gets to the Father except through me. Through me is another way of saying no one gets to the Father without believing in me. Remember what Jesus said. I hope you've all memorized it. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever what? Believes in him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not just whoever believes in whatever, as long as you're sincere, whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Number three, the promise. So we've seen the person. We've seen the path, if I can put it that way. Uh, faith is the path. It's the doorway that leads to Christ, where we find salvation. We studied that in detail in John 10. But what about the promise? Again, this comes out of these two verses. Again, verse 25, he who believes in me, listen, though he may die, hold on to that, may die. You know, the skeptic reads this and goes, what do you mean may die? All right, well, hang on to that, okay? Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Peter said that God has given to us as his people many exceedingly great and precious promises. Of all the promises God has given, the first, not that it's first in chronology, but first in the sense of superiority, the first and most important of all the promises that God has given to us is the promise of eternal life to those who believe in Jesus and receive him as their Savior. I'll read these to you. You can write down the uh, addresses, the references. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Paul said, In him, in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise. God has promised us eternal life when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's a promise, right? Jesus is declaring it right here in John 11, again, verses 25 and 6, that whoever believes in me, though he die, shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This is a promise that God has given to us. It's not something, and the writer of the Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, 
makes it a big point to tell us that the new covenant was built on better promises. And that is because God has promised to give us eternal life the moment we give our heart to Christ and receive him as our Lord and Savior. The idea is religion never can promise that. Uh, Religion, for the most part, uh, even the Catholic religion, which I grew up in, teaches that, you know, not even the Pope himself himself can say that he has eternal life because he doesn't know if he's done enough good works. Now, most Catholics would say, well, the Pope, you know, he's he's a shoo-in. Okay, he's a shoo-in. But Catholic theology says that anyone who claims that they have past tense or present, you know, that they have eternal life is anathema, is to be cursed to the lowest hell. Because in Catholic theology, and they're not alone, any religious system based, based on salvation by works or righteousness through works is a system whereby you have to work to earn your salvation. You never know if you've done enough good works at any point in your life, right? So God can't promise that to you, that, you know, that you have it. You might get it someday if you've proven yourself worthy and done enough good works. But where we are promised, you put your faith in Christ, you have received everlasting life. It's a done deal. You're not working towards it. You have it. It's yours, okay? When Jesus said to Martha, again, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. What he was saying is, what he was saying is, as a Christian, you may die physically. You say, well, I don't get that. You may die. Well, you might be raptured as a Christian. And you'll never die, right? Of course, a lot of unbelievers don't even know what that means, rapture, okay? We know what it means. At one point, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come down and is going to call our names. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. He's going to take us to heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb before he comes back to the earth with his church and his holy angels to establish his kingdom. So there is a generation of Christians that will never die physically, okay? And that's what we're all rooting for. But um, even though someday you may die, even though someday your consciousness, your soul, might be separated from your physical body, folks, that is the very definition of physical death, where your soul is separated from your body. All right? That may happen, but that doesn't mean that you, the real you, will be dead. The body might be. The body isn't the real you. So many often make the mistake of thinking. The real me is spirit. I live in this body, which God has given to me so that I can express myself on the earth in this dimensionality. That's why God has given me a body for earth, because I am a creature of the earth. My physical body is a product of the earth, a body that was taken from the earth. Remember, Adam was made out of the dust of the earth, and we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. So we all have a body that was taken from the earth. It's for the earth. It will someday return back to the dust of the earth when we die. But the body is not the real me. The spirit is the real me. The body is only a vehicle, kind of like a car is a vehicle, which takes me from point A to point B. Look, the car is not the real you. 
It's only a vehicle that you use to get from one place to another. The same is true uh, with our physical bodies. But someday as a Christian, this old body is going to wear out, and then my spirit is going to move out, okay? He's going to move out of this worn-out tent into a beautiful new mansion not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, my new glorified body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. This is what Jesus meant when he said, He who believes in me, though he may die, listen, he shall, she shall live. He was talking about physical, bodily resurrection. And guys, of course, this is the hope of every child of God, that because I, you, believe in Jesus Christ, we're never going to really die. That doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be a funeral service someday for this old body. I just mean that the real me won't die because Jesus has given me, the person living in this physical body, eternal life. And eternal life, by its very definition, is life for eternity. It can't die. It can't die. And that's what Jesus went on to say in verse 26. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This speaks of spiritual life, eternal life. And how a believer in Jesus will, would never experience spiritual death. Spiritual death. You never. Once you're saved, you are never going to experience Spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Well, it's what the Bible calls in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 20, verse 6, verse 14, chapter 21, verse 8, calls it the second death. And it's when a person is cast into the lake of fire or hell for eternity. Blessed is he or she who takes part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. If you are raptured, because, and if you are, you're a believer, a true, genuine, born-again believer, if you are raptured, when the rapture takes place, you're never going to see, you're never going to taste the second death. You will never be cast into hell. The Bible is very clear about this. You've passed from death to life, you shall never come in to condemnation, to judgment, to hell. So instead of a funeral service, when a Christian dies, we, we ought to call it a moving party. <laughs> because all I did was move out of an old worn out tent into a beautiful new mansion promised to me by Jesus. I like what D.L. Moody said along these lines. He said, and I quote, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. <laughs> Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is, uh, that is all out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Well, the fourth main point in our outline of these two verses, the power, the power. Let me read them all. Both of them again. Jesus said in verse 25 to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the part I want you to see. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now look, 
I know we talked about faith being the path to eternal life in the second main point of our outline of this, these two verses. However, guys, and I want you to get this real clear. There are two kinds of faith. There's passive faith and active faith, or in other words, dead faith and living faith. There are many people who, quote unquote, believe in Jesus. Guys, I did as a Roman Catholic who believe that he is the son of God who died for their sins, who rose again from the dead the third day, but they will not be going to heaven. Why? If they believe in Jesus and they believe all the things that we believe in Jesus, why will they not be going to heaven? Because faith only becomes saving faith when it believes to the point, listen, of commitment. When it believes to the point of commitment. That's when it becomes, listen, living and powerful. Until then, it is passive and powerless. You all remember James chapter 2, verse 19, where James said, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. James' point is that passive faith is not the kind of faith that saves. Even the demons believe, that, believe the facts about Jesus and the gospel. The demons believe that he is the virgin-born son of God who died for the sins of humanity and rose from the dead. And yet that faith isn't going to save them. They won't be in heaven because they believe that. They believe it more than we believe it, although we believe it pretty strongly, obviously. But they were there to see, is my point. They were there to see Jesus being born of a virgin. They were there to watch him grow up. They were there to see him conduct his ministry in real time. They were there when he was crucified and died, was buried. And on the third day, the angel rolled the stone away and Jesus stepped from the tomb alive. They were there. They saw it all. And yet they're not going to heaven. Why? Because they don't believe to the point of commitment. They're rebels. There are a lot of people who have grown up in church that really do believe the facts about Jesus and yet are not saved. Again, I was one of them as a Roman Catholic. Because passive faith, or in other words, mere head knowledge, won't save anybody. The kind of faith that is genuine and saves is not passive, it is active. Believing in Jesus, of course, that's important. Having the facts about Christ nailed down in your, in your mind, very important. But by itself, it's not enough to get you into heaven unless you take the next step and receive him into your heart by committing your life to him. It's, this is what is called believing to the point of commitment. John began his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. He said, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Let me reverse it, okay, because this is really what John is saying. The idea is that to become a child of God and receive eternal life, a person must believe in Jesus. They must have the facts uh, in their head. They must believe the facts about Christ, obviously. And then they need to receive him as their savior. That's the commitment part. The believing, a lot of people believe. They're not going to heaven. Because they haven't taken it to the next step where they commit themselves to Christ. We have used this analogy before. Let me use it again. A person can believe uh, in the beauty 
and validity of marriage. But unless they actually believe to the point of commitment by pledging their love and loyalty to a member of the opposite sex, until they have done that, they haven't actually entered into marriage, regardless of how much they believe in it as an institution. The same is true when we talk about Jesus and salvation. A person can believe who Jesus is and what he did with all their heart, but unless they take it to the next step and enter into a commitment, into a committed relationship with Jesus, where they pledge to love him, and above all, to be loyal to him and to be obedient to him for the rest of their life, in other words, that he is going to become their Lord, until they have done that, they haven't actually entered into salvation. I mean, there's a lot of folks that go to church on a regular basis. They've grown up in the church. They went to Awanas, we'll say. They went to Sunday school every week for years. They believe everything about Christ that a born-again Christian believes. But they have never taken it. And they, and they could believe that heaven is going to be the greatest place in the universe that being saved is the best thing that can ever happen to somebody. They could believe in, quote-unquote, the institution of salvation. But unless they take it to the next step and pledge themselves to Christ, enter into a marriage relationship with him, a committed relationship, it's going to do them no good, all that head knowledge, right? Guys, it is the commitment that brings about the relationship that puts you in Christ, which is what salvation is all about. The whole book of Ephesians is devoted to that concept, being in Christ. Another way of saying you are in the body of Christ. You are hidden in Christ. You're saved. You're born again. Until that time, you might be on the outside looking in, just like a lot of folks the, the Ark of, the, of Noah represents Christ. If you ever studied that, incredible study, all right? Uh, you can go online, and when we talked about the Ark, Noah's Ark, we likened it to Christ. Noah's Ark is a type of Christ. Only those people inside the Ark were saved from the waters of judgment, right? So a lot of folks, when the flood, they were laughing at Noah for, you know, 120 years while he's building this thing in his driveway. You know, they, they thought it was a lot of fun. The tour buses were pulling up every, look at this idiot. You know, he's, he thinks there's going to be rain. We don't even know what rain is. And, and, and they're laughing until the rain started coming. Until Noah and his family went in the ark, God sealed them in, then the rain started coming. Now, all of a sudden, they're big believers, aren't they? I would imagine they were pounding on that ark, let us in, let us in. We believe, we believe too late. There's a lot of folks mocking Jesus right now. Someday on the day of judgment, they're going to be wishing they had entered into Christ. But that's why the Bible talks about salvation in marital terms. Calling Jesus our bridegroom and Christians the bride of Christ. You don't become a Christian until you're willing to enter into the deepest kind of relationship with Jesus that there is. That two people can enter into the marriage relationship. The problem, and we're, we're done, the problem with many churchgoers, Jesus wants a committed relationship. Jesus wants marriage with people for them to be saved. 
The problem with so many churchgoers is they want to date Jesus, quote-unquote, but are not really serious about making a commitment to him. The Lord is proposing marriage to them, salvation. And their response is, and don't you just hate this if you really cared about somebody of the opposite sex and really wanted to pursue a serious, committed relation. You wanted to marry them. And at one point you maybe revealed your intention and they came back with the phrase, yeah, I just want to be friends. Ouch. Jesus is proposing marriage to every person on the planet. Some of them walk away in disgust because they have no desire for Christ. Some go to church and are fond of Jesus. Marriage, well, I don't mind dating you, Lord, but you know how some people are always wanting to keep their options open? I just want to be friends, Jesus. But there is no salvation without believing in Jesus to the point of commitment and receiving him as your Savior and, I will add, your bridegroom. Again, we're on that last point, the power, the power. Verse 26, uh, excuse me, verse, uh, yes, verse 26, um, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then it ends by saying, uh, he ends by saying, do you, Martha, believe this? Do you believe this? Saving faith is always personal before it can become powerful in its ability to save. In other words, it's not enough to believe that Jesus is a Savior, one of many roads that will lead to God. It's not even enough to believe that He is the Savior, the only way that leads to God. He must be my Savior, my Savior, if I'm going to enter into Him and be saved. Guys, again, the power of saving faith is that it is personal, never general. It's not enough to say, well, my family believes in Jesus. Or as Americans, we believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't save groups. He saves individuals who become a group, his body. You can't get into heaven because your mom was a devout Christian. You're going to get into heaven because your you know, spouse goes to church every Sunday. And you hope that when they come home, maybe some of it spills over on you. Well, some does, but not salvation. Blessings, because they walk, they know God, and God pours his blessings out on them, and because you're married to them, some of it spills over onto you, true. We're talking about salvation now. You can't get saved because of someone else's faith. There is no salvation by proxy is the kind of idea. God has got no grandkids. Everybody has to become a child of God by believing in Christ. That's just the bottom line. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, what? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come, who was to come into the world. So we will continue next week. Um, this is such an incredible chapter. There is a lot more to come that is incredible. Um, and really helps us to get a greater insight into Jesus, his heart, his power, and so on. So come on back. We'll continue next week. Father, 
We thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Give us grace to have a voracious appetite for your word, Lord, and to feed on it constantly, and give us grace to understand what we read and the ability to apply it into our lives. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.